0: Well, we're going to just briefly over the Sundays of Advent look at some of the important places of Christmas. And let me tell you, after uh, being since 2019, way back in 2019 in the Gospel of Mark, Pastor Allen was excited this week to just be in a different part of the Bible. I love the Gospel of Mark. The life of Christ was powerful and impactful. I was so excited. And so today we... Turn one page from the Gospel of Mark, Turn, take your Bible in hand, go to the end of the Gospel of Mark, turn the page to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. I said, oh boy, we didn't get very far from the Gospel of Mark. One page over, but that's where the story of Christmas is in Luke. And this morning, the worship team did a wonderful job, as all of our worship teams do. And they sang, did you catch the places of Christmas in their songs? Well, we heard of that precious place we like to think of at Christmas, oh, little town of Bethlehem. But just as important a place in Christmas is where the story begins, where most of the angelic visits happen. And yet it's the city, the town, the place of Christmas that tends to get short shrift. And we'll be there today. We'll be in Nazareth. We'll begin by looking in Luke chapter 1, which takes place In a town in Galilee, the town of Nazareth, as the angel Gabriel visits Mary, and that story begins in her life, it begins in verse 26 by saying, in the sixth month. Well, we know earlier that's the sixth month of Mary's cousin Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. And in that sixth month, time-wise, the angel visits Mary now in Nazareth. It says, and I'm going to read further down, I'm going to read that whole section rather than what's just up on the screen in front of you. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This incredible story, the annunciation is what we have just uh, read in church parlance. The announcement to Mary of the birth of God's own son. And that announcement took place in Nazareth. Nazareth. Of all places, it took place in Nazareth. And that speaks to us today. I've called today's message, I I, I fished around for a a title, but there really isn't much to say about Nazareth other than Nazareth, nowhere special. (laughs) Nowhere special, Nazareth. Now Nazareth, if you want to look at the history of Nazareth, I'd invite you to turn to the Old Testament and read all the stories that took place in Nazareth Well, it won't take long because there are no stories of Nazareth. Nazareth is not even mentioned in passing in the Old Testament. We don't even know it exists. And most of the people in Israel didn't know it existed until Jesus came along. As he was called throughout his life and even referred to himself on the road to Damascus to the Apostle Paul, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Nazareth. The followers of Christ, the early followers, were called followers of the Nazarene. They were called the Nazarene sect. Nazareth took on whole new meaning and importance. But when we find Mary in this town in Galilee, it's a little bigger than a village, but it's much smaller than a city. It's just a town called Nazareth. I have a map before you, and it's a map of Galilee during Jesus' time. It's going to be hard to see, and I've got to turn around and look behind me. You see the big part of northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee there on the center right-hand side. Uh, that gives you perspective, because the Sea of Galilee is about seven miles long, north to south, and it's about three and a half miles wide, north to south, and the uh, it's shaped a bit like the harp, so that's what it was called, the Kinneret, the people, the local People called it the the Kinneret, which talks about its harp shape, like the harp that King David played. And you see Nazareth. Nazareth, you look at the southern tip of the lake, and then you go midway between the southern tip and the Mediterranean Sea, the coastline. Well, that's about 15, 20 kilometers over, you find the little village of Nazareth. You find it right there. It's on the left side of our screen because the sea is not quite seen. And south of it is the Jezreel Valley, the most agriculturally rich valley in Israel. But scripture also says that one day there will be a mighty battle in that valley. And that valley, which is overseen by the Mount, uh, Mount uh, you know, Megiddo, uh, gives the valley its name of Har-Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon. That's where that great battle is going to take place. And I like this map because it's topographical. You see around the Sea of Galilee and below it, it's all gray. That's because it's below sea level. In fact, the Sea of Galilee is half a kilometer below sea level. It's a volcanic crater. It's a volcanic Uh, lake there not active by any means but that's why it is so low and it flows down the river jordan into the dead sea which is a full kilometer below sea level and any of you have been on a trip to the holy land know that when you were at the sea of galilee or the dead sea you just feel good because the air is so thick there's so much oxygen there's almost a bit of euphoria people just feel good when they're there not only is it as precious and a holy place, but uh, there's, the air is so thick and rich in those spots. But not Nazareth. Nazareth is on a rocky hillside overlooking the rich valley. It's not special. It's dusty. It's rocky. It's hot most of the year. It's just Nazareth. We want to set the stage for the story that we've already heard and following by looking a bit at Nazareth today. <clears throat> Nazareth today, as you see, that picture, that's most of the city right there. And you look at the land. That's on top of a hill, on top of that rocky ridge, but it's actually shaped like a bowl. And at the very bottom of the bowl, you'll always see pictures of Nazareth, that tall, conical church tower that is the Basilica of the Annunciation, which we'll see in a little while. The population of Nazareth. Let's go to the next picture and look at that bowl again. There's the great city of Nazareth, right in the middle of that. <laughs> right in the middle of that is the church, the Basilica of the Annunciation. And you can always tell uh, the makeup of a city in Israel when you see red tile roofs. Those are Jewish families and Jewish buildings. They finish their buildings with red tiles, generally. Not so the Arab buildings. Arabs' buildings, especially their homes, have a flat roof, concrete, with rebar sticking up. That's because they build on. As the family grows, they just slap another story on the house, pour another uh, room up there, and their houses are never finished. And I once asked, why do the rebar stick out, though? Isn't that dangerous for the kids? They say that's for taxation purposes. As soon as the house is done, the taxes will go up, so those houses... Are never done and uh, you can see Nazareth as you look close to the picture it's largely an Arab Israeli these people are citizens of the nation of Israel but they are Arab citizens this is the largest Arab Israeli city in Israel and it's in that little bowl on the hillside they cram in almost 80,000 people the majority of the Arabs who live there are Muslim that's 70 percent but 30 percent are Christian Arabs. You see uh you see Arab churches, uh First Baptist Nazareth, it's a Arab uh, church and many Christian Arabs in Nazareth. And uh it's it's a lot of people in a tight spot. Whenever you visit Nazareth, uh tourists are crowding their way through the crowds because there's so many people in that spot. Nazareth was known uh over the last 2000 years primarily as the hometown of Jesus. And as the pilgrims would come, they really only had one place they would visit, and that's the old site called the, uh, the Fountain of the Virgin, or the Virgin's Fountain. The next picture shows that. Uh, there's an old picture, and the ladies there, all with the water pots on their head, because originally the town fountain uh, was outside of the town. We found the remains of the ancient town of Jesus' time, and the water supply was outside of the town, reminiscent of of the woman at the well remember the ladies would have to leave town and walk out to the water source and carry their water back and in this picture throughout the 18 and early 1900s all of the pilgrims would come by as they had for centuries and the local women made their money by posing out there with water pots on their heads especially once photographs came along you give them some money and they'll take a picture and it reminds you of uh, young mary going to the fountain that's why it's called the virgin's fountain that's what it looked like a hundred and something years ago here's a picture of what it looks like today it's not so crowded you don't see the local women any longer posing with uh, water pots on their heads uh, if you don't know how important that site was you'll go right by it but that site also gives us a clue about jesus time because it's a very stable Uh, fountain a very stable spring that it's based on on that dry rocky hill it's the only water source for the area the water is not good water you can drink it it's potable water but it's much better tasting after you boil it because the water is tepid it doesn't taste good and at most it would supply in jesus time probably 50 60 families and families were large in those days, so the town of Nazareth would be about half the size of our local town of Troshu here. It just gives you a feel for Jesus growing up in a small town with small town mores and attitudes. Now today, the Virgin's Fountain, you don't see a lot of foot traffic there because that great basilica, the sign here pointing, uh, road sign pointing to the, the church of the, uh, the Annunciation. As you look at road signs in Israel, they're always in three languages for which I am thankful. They are in Hebrew, they are in Arabic, and they're in English. Hebrew, Arabic, English. And it says, this way to the Basilica of the Annunciation. Well, you look at the picture of the Basilica. It's a beautiful and an enormous building. There we go. And uh, that's that conical tower, that beautiful conical tower made of, uh, I think it's uh, copper. On top of that, though it's not green, so it might be a little bit different, but it's copper-colored, inside of this enormous basilica, which is decorated by great murals of the Virgin Mary from all the countries of the world, uh canada included it has a great obviously a great uh worship space but this picture though it looks like an enormous space which it is it's actually the basement of the basilica because the basilica itself is built over ancient archaeological ruins which uh generally are from, probably from the first century. And so people go there and they look inside this lower worship area. If you look closer and zoom in, as the next picture will, there is a grotto, there's an ancient building, an ancient home. And so, of course, this is called the Grotto of the Holy Family. Uh, tradition has christened this the home of Joseph and Mary and Jesus once they move back to Nazareth. The Christmas story is really a circular journey. Uh, We'll go from Nazareth, we go to Bethlehem, we go to Egypt, we go through Jerusalem, we wind up back in Nazareth. And so this, if not the, as very likely it is not the actual home of the Holy Family, it at least is reminiscent of. And it's a wonderful place to spend a few quiet moments outside of the hectic hustle and bustle of normal uh, Nazareth traffic. That's Nazareth today. It's there because of Jesus his hometown. That's why that little nondescript Nowhereville village has grown to be that large Arab city with the largest uh, Christian Arab population in Israel. That used to be in Bethlehem, uh, but those people uh, under persecution from Hamas have largely immigrated to uh, North America. Strangely, most of them have wound up in Orange County, California, down in the Los Angeles area. Today... Let's look at Nazareth biblically. Nazareth in Jesus' time, as we've mentioned and hinted at, was a place of no account. Literally no account. You don't find it in your Bible in the Old Testament. It just comes out of nowhere. This picture you see before you, if you get a good look of it on the screen, that is a recreation from archaeological ruins of Nazareth of Jesus' time. There in the foreground... You see the virgin's fount. There's the ladies of town out getting their water, usually in the morning and then later in the day, in the cool of the morning and the cool of the evening. The town itself is up the rocky hillside a little bit further. That'll be containing the synagogue, the houses and so forth for the town. The synagogue being the primary public building which houses a place for worship and education of the children. Again, about half the size of Troshu. Just there, on that dusty hillside north of the Jezreel Valley, as you look at it though, we uh, see something important, as we already read this morning, happened there in nazareth it was uh, It was the Annunciation of the angels before that nazareth had if it had any reputation, it was a poor reputation. Why? Because it wasn't in the good part of the country to most of the practicing Jews. The worst part of the country is Samaria, (laughs) those Samaritans. They're a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And as far as the Jews were concerned, they had things all mixed up, all wrong in their their worship of God. So if Samaria was the worst place that you didn't walk through, the second worst neighborhood in Israel is the Galilee. Why is that? Well, it's hinted at, at least in part, as we find in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. That's actually a quote, an actual quote, as Jesus is preaching from Isaiah chapter 9. This is, Jesus has just moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, from the lower to the upper Galilee. And in the synagogue, it says, this is the, what is fulfilled. It says, from Isaiah 9, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of shadow, a light has dawned. This is how Galilee from Old Testament times to Jesus' time was thought of. It was a place of Gentiles. It was a place of mixed population, where Jerusalem was where the Faith was practiced in a, in a pure and holy manner in their thinking. Galilee, you couldn't trust those people. They were always shoulder to shoulder, rubbing elbows with the Gentiles. Well, one reason for that is that as you go back to the time of the, uh, the uh, land being conquered under Joshua, at that time, uh, the tribes of Dan and Naphtali and those, they were up there and they could not dislodge the Gentile people. And so they backed off and let the Gentiles stay there by and large. And they were there throughout the years. It was always an area of Gentiles. By Jesus' time, it had many Gentiles in the in the large cities in that area were very Gentile. They they had theaters and they had arenas and they, they were Greco-Roman in in culture. When Alexander the Great came through, he planted uh, towns in that area which were the retiring soldiers. That's what Alexander did. As he fought his way across the world, as his soldiers were wounded or getting tired out, he would cashier them out of his army. He would take new locals into his army, let his Greek soldiers stay in that area and marry local women and plant Greek culture. That's the Galilee. That's why throughout Jesus' ministry, all he has to do is sell across the Sea of Galilee, that lake from one side to the other, and suddenly he's in Greek country with herds of pigs and and the people are all Gentiles. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not a good neighborhood in the thinking of most Jews. This This is really reflected in that famous passage from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we see Philip and Nathanael. Remember, Jesus encountered uh, his future disciples, those who belonged to the 12, first in Judea when he was down in events surrounding his baptism by John uh, near Jericho. And these were Judean people by and large. Later, he even met the Galilean fishermen first in Judea before he went back to Galilee. Speaking of Jesus moving back up to the Galilee it says in john chapter 1 verse 43 the next day jesus decided to leave for galilee finding philip he said to him follow me philip like andrew and peter was from the town of bethsaida philip found nathaniel and told him we have found one we have found the one moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph Nazareth can anything good come from there Nathanael asked come and see said Philip these were Galileans but even among Galileans that not so good neighborhood Nazareth for some reason was looked down on some people have hypothesized that because nearby to Nazareth there was a large Roman base where the Roman legion for that part of the world was stationed, that these people were seen as traitors, doing business with the Romans and so forth. It was also near a very Gentile city, uh, Herod Antipas' first capital called Sephorus that was built there before he moved his capital to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, the city called Tiberias. It was very Gentile. But even to Galileans, these Bethsaida fishermen, uh, Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, Jesus of Nazareth was what he was known as. In those days, you were called, you didn't have a last name, so you were either referred to as your father, as they did there. Jesus, thought to be the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus, of nazareth he was called and as we see that his enemies used that against him his very birthplace uh, was against him being the messiah as philip thought he was john chapter 7 we see beginning verse 40 on hearing his words some of the people said surely this man is the prophet and they're looking at the messianic figure they're expecting the messiah the christ and others said he is the christ Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. It goes on, says, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. They either wanted to worship him as the Christ or they wanted to seize him and get rid of him as a pretender. And one of the things his enemies used against him was the town of Nazareth. The Messiah is not from Nazareth. He's from the line of David. He's going to reign on David's throne as the angel announced to Mary. And of his kingdom there will be no end. But not Jesus. He's a Galilean hillbilly. He's from Nazareth. How could he be the Messiah? They were unbelieving. Well, now we come to... I almost wanted to say to the root of the matter, but you'll see that that is kind of funny being what we're talking about next. The messianic branch. This, I believe, is the key to unlocking why, of all places, Nazareth. The picture you see there is one that you see from time to time if you uh, go through the forest. Perhaps uh, a tree has been broken off because of a storm. Or more likely these days, somebody uh, cut it down and you see a stump. That stump which to all appearances is dead, dead, dead. It might be moldy and moldering and starting to fall apart. But often you look closely at that stump and you see life. You see a green shoot growing up small and tender from that old dead stump. That in the Hebrew language is called a netzer, a sprout. A shoot which grows into a branch which brings the tree back and may even someday bear fruit. Now that picture of a stump being cut off and to all appearances being dead and done for and then later that green shoot growing up that is one of the most powerful messianic metaphors and symbols in the Bible. It's used again and again and again By the prophets, as we'll see, as a picture, a mental picture of who the Messiah is. It's an incredible thing. It's unbelievable. It's as unbelievable as the Messiah coming from a place like Nazareth. Netzer. Remember that. Netzer. Now, the key to this is the story. We pick up the Christmas story, but as you know, the Christmas story really, it begins with the Annunciation the Holy Spirit working, Elizabeth, then Mary miraculously having children, one the Son of God, the children being born because they're dislocated down to Bethlehem, the child being in danger, and the parents leaving for Egypt as refugees. And Matthew then picks up the story as they hear Herod is dead. King Herod the Great, who ordered the children of Bethlehem to be killed, he's gone. And he died about 4 BC, so Jesus was born around 5 or 6 BC. And he's gone, and they want to return back to their homeland. It seems likely they want to come back to Bethlehem. That that is where they'd made their home and felt comfortable living. But let's see how that works out. It's back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 and following. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled, and this is the key, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now the key there is a little letter, the letter S. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, plural. The prophets. So you expect to find this prophecy in the mouths or the pens of many of the Old Testament prophets looking forward to the birth of the Messiah. But you look for it, you search it, you use your computer software, you won't find it. This prophecy, in so many words, is not there. And that's because it's the prophets. It's a message of multiple prophets prophets which the Holy Spirit has led Matthew to sum up, and he will be called a Nazarene. Now, this is important because in the Hebrew thought, they often do wordplay, like Moses and so forth. Moses sounded like he was pulled out of the water. They love that. It's how they think. And Netzer, that shoot growing up out of that dead stump, well, a Nazarene is that person. It's referring to him. He's a Nazarene. He's a Netsarene. He's the shoot. He's the Messiah from that dead stump. Now, what's the dead stump? Well, we see in these passages we're going to look at, it's the line of David. It's the line of the kings of Judah and Israel that was long thought to be dead and gone. It had been gone for almost 600 years. It had been 580 years when Jesus was born since the last Davidic king sat on the throne and that was the tragic figure Zedekiah during the Babylonian captivity. From Zedekiah to Jesus, the stump is dead. The kingdom is cut off. Has God's promise failed? No. A child is coming from the line of David. Interestingly, not only Mary but Joseph are both descendants of King David. Now, this is incredible, and it sounds crazy to the people who hear it. But it's as crazy as our little town. Imagine, to try to make it something we can understand. The time almost fits perfectly. Think of a king about the same length of time ago. Well, that would be back the time of Henry VIII, the Tudor dynasty in England. You remember Henry VIII, Bloody Mary, Queen Elizabeth the Great. And after her, the Stuarts took over. These great monarchs, they're legendary in their excesses, in their passions, in their cutting their wives' heads off if they didn't quite please them. That seems like forever ago. But imagine something so crazy, we find out a person from Trochu is the direct descendant of Henry VIII. Not only that, but he's been contacted by England Now with genetics and so forth, we've determined that he is the rightful ruler of England. We want to get rid of the Windsors because, you know, after the queen, the rest of them we don't care so much for anyway. So we're putting Henry back on the throne. The Tudor dynasty has returned almost 600 years later. And that lad from Troshu, a town so humble and unknown that you talk to anyone outside of town, they don't even know how to pronounce our name. How many times you're trying to order something and they see your address, oh, you're from Trochu? <laughs> yeah, trochu that's us. They don't even know how to pronounce our name. What? It must be the greatest person in Trochu. I bet they work at Trochu Motors. No. <laughs> Not the Prince of Trochu. no. This lad works at Cal Tire in the garage. With the grease monkeys, oh boy, you'd shake your head. Not a chance. Not a chance. Unbelievable. Yet that was true. Jesus, the son of David. We know his enemies didn't realize Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as we'll talk about more next week. This is an incredible, incredible thing. And he is now growing up. And being identified as a Nazarene, God's great sign pointing, this is the messianic branch. This is him. That prophecy, let's look at them real quick. It begins in Isaiah chapter 11. This is exciting. Isaiah 11, it says to give hope to God's people in captivity, Isaiah 1 to 3, a shoot, that's the netzer, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, that's David's tribe, his father, from his roots. A branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. The spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And the chapter goes on. It's one of the great messianic chapters. And it's about the Netzer. The Nazarene. Jeremiah. Zechariah many of the prophets that becomes their standard name for the Messiah the branch that's what they call him and if you aren't familiar with that you're reading and you don't have a clue what they're talking about for instance in in Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 15 to 16 look at the characteristics here of of the Messiah in those days And at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, it the branch, the Lord, our righteousness. A divine title. Not only is the branch coming back the line of David, but the branch is also divine. This is the Nazarene. This is all pointing to Jesus. And then incredibly, Isaiah in the servant songs, which are messianic, speaks of the fact that the branch will become a suffering servant. He will live in an area that nobody respects. He will be despised as an individual. You'd almost think he'd come from a place like Nazareth. Isaiah 53, one, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. There's the there's the netzer. And like a root out of the dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. <laughs> what good can come from Nazareth? And he was known as the Nazarene. The one from the town of the branch. He was the messianic branch. Jesus of Nazareth. And that leads us to close before the communion time. People, because he was from Nazareth, and Nazareth itself, because of his humble origins, took jesus for granted it took him for granted we remember as we read back through the gospel of mark how jesus came to his hometown and he preached in the synagogue and just through his wisdom and his ability as a teacher it says that the people they took offense remember our study of mark back in mark chapter six it says in verse one and following jesus left there and went to his hometown that's nazareth accompanied by his disciples and when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he's been give, that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, "Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor." It says he didn't do miracles there because of the lack of faith. He was taken for granted. And friends, this Christmas, in the hustle and bustle of the season, in the midst of the decorations, the lighting of the candles, the manger scenes, it's familiar. it's traditional but it's also easy to take Jesus of Nazareth for granted. God knowing that, that's human nature. Familiarity can even breed contempt. God gave us the gift of remembrance. To remember Jesus' love for us in the distance to which he was willing to go on our behalf. And that's what brings us to the Lord's table month in and month out that we remember what Jesus did for us when he showed us the full extent of his love that we never, ever take him for granted. And so in just a few moments, we'll be sharing that together. But at this time, as Dorothy plays quietly, let's just uh, pause and remember Jesus, that we don't take him for granted. Remember who he was growing up in Nazareth teaching publicly, living that perfect life and taking your sins and mine to the cross to pay pay for them. Let's pray quietly for a moment. Lord, as we come to your table, I pray, Father, that we would set apart Jesus as Lord. Father, though he lived in a humble town, the people looked down on. Lord, you communicated that ordinary people and places were important to you, that there is nothing beyond the reach of your love. So, Father, this morning, wherever this time finds us, In country, town, or city, Lord, draw us to Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen. To the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus has given us the gift of remembrance. As we open our fellowship cups and take out the wafer, the symbol of the body of Christ, Given for us. Let's share it together. Amen. Bible tells us that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup, said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, Whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's share it together. Amen. Friends, thank you so much for coming out today. Despite the restrictions, it's wonderful to be together in the house of the Lord as the family of God. And in the sound of my voice today, whether you are at home or together here with us in the church, you are just that. You are in God's family. He loves you so. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. As we share at the Lord's table, what a reminder, not only of Christ's love for us, but our unity with one another. Let's stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray for those here that you would bless us, strengthen us. Lord, just give us patience, courage, and strength to face the days ahead. Uh, especially, Lord, as times get harder and harder before the end of the pandemic. And Lord, for those at home as well, just give them a sense of your presence, the love that you have for them, and the love that their church family has for them as well. We ask you to bless us now as we go from this place of worship to our places of ministry. We ask it all in Christ's precious name. Amen.